there that were had some stories to tell being misunderstood. Some of them can be very comical, uh, being misunderstood about what what's happening or what you what you've talked about. Um, the Bible actually talks about misunderstanding the Bible, actually, and uh, we think sometimes the you know being misunderstood is is cute, funny sometimes, but sometimes it can be very serious. Someone doesn't miss. Someone doesn't hear you right, or if they kind of read into what you're saying, they can really misinterpret what you're saying. It can really destroy relationships. It can uh, really destroy families. It can destroy uh, your workplace, and maybe even you could lose a job over being misunderstood. The consequences can be very serious about mis being misunderstood. I was in a, a church one time, and I was leading worship. And the worship team, we were all up front, um, kind of laughing and joking and talking amongst ourselves. And we had a, a new family that was actually coming a little bit. They weren't regular, but they were a little bit. They had uh, an autistic child who was who had some challenges. And so they on Sundays where he was doing really well, they would bring him into church. And it just so happened on this particular Sunday that we were up there kind of laughing and joking around this particular family came in and in our conversation someone said not him again and that was heard by this family and they took great offense to that wasn't meant for them but they heard that and they left and they never came back so being misunderstood or being misheard or you know, it can really affect how we connect with one another. And even more importantly, if you misunderstand what the Bible is actually trying to say to us, it can really affect your connection and your relationship with God. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to talk about some of those passages in the Bible that tend to be misunderstood. Um, this idea of being misunderstood is, is rampant in our society because of what? Social media, right? Um, I can't understand what you're saying if you send me a text. I, I don't see your face. I don't. Uh, and and when you're posting stuff on Facebook, you may be uh, typing something out and you're being very tongue in cheek. You know what that means? Yeah, you're just being cheeky, or you're just trying to to get a laugh or get a rise out of someone. And then someone says, "Oh, that was mean." You know. So we don't. We have this. Uh, with social media, there's this whole other world that we can be misunderstood in. And I think some, I heard one of you sharing uh, something about social media in your group. Um, and it's this area of we just it really destroys and divides. Um, and that's the if we if we don't take a look at it, um, we will have a world where we're being destroyed and divided. And that's what social media is doing, by the way. It's supposed to do what? bring us together, and when people get misunderstood all the time, what happens? Yeah, it breaks you apart. That's right. And so it's really actually having the opposite effect. We have more students. Matter of fact, our year six students at Walls End at the moment, their, their year is totally fractured. They started the year all together as one unit. It's term four, and they're totally fractured now. They don't like each other. There's terrible uh, uh, 
dramas going on in between their relationships with one another. You know why? Social media. It all has to do with them not being understood about what they're really saying. So this could have a drastic effect. How do you think being misunderstood and the, the scriptures being misunderstood has affected our world throughout history? What do we have today in our world because the scriptures have been misunderstood? We have more denominations than I could probably list in a, in a half hour of being up here. We have more denominational structures out there, and all of them are around. Why? Because they think somebody misunderstood what the Scripture is saying. And so because they think that they understand it more than the other person, what happens? They split, and they're fractured, and there's a denomination, a new denomination, the First Second Presbyterian Church of Main Street, uh, Newcastle. And then there's the other Baptist church down the road, and there's another Presbyterian church, and then Methodist church. There's all these fractures, and they all are based from this particular idea of misunderstanding the scriptures. Um, and it's, it, it can be very sad. How many denominations were there when Jesus was resurrected? None. There was one group. One group. But it didn't take long. If you're reading the book of Acts, it didn't take long before there was different misunderstandings of what was happening. And it was only through people sitting down and talking those things through that they were able to still be united and move forward as one body. Um, unfortunately, we don't take the time to talk to each other anymore about those things. We just think, oh, it's easier just to separate and go do my own thing. Um, and so we want to be a church that does this right. And so there are some guidelines. There are some rules of looking at the scriptures. There are some uh, uh, what I call guidelines to being able to understand and interpret what the Bible has to say. And even the Bible itself says that you need to be able to interpret and understand what the Bible says. In first, uh, in Second Peter 1, 19 and 20, uh, uh, Peter is actually writing a letter and he's talking about these sections of the Bible that predict future comings, prophetic, what we call prophetic scripture, uh, how God is trying to prepare people for the future. And he says, he says, and so we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. And then he goes on to say, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, but know this first. That no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. In other words, we have to look at it closely and we have to, to really base it not on just our own personal view, but on what the Bible is really trying to say. So nearly all misunderstandings today by Christians can be traced to the distortion of the meaning of the biblical word. And so there are eight things I'm going to take you to real, real quick, and they're in your phone, on your events section. And if there's any event uh, section that you need to save on your phone, it's this one today because it has all eight of these. And we will be referring back to these um, throughout our series because every misunderstanding of the Bible comes from one of these eight, mis one of these eight rules or guidelines that we can look at. So... 
Biblical interpretation is more than just knowing a set of rules, but it cannot be done without the rules or the guidelines. Uh, so I believe if we learn these guidelines and we apply them right, then we are setting ourselves up for being able to learn and understand the Bible in a better way. So what's the first one on your phones? The rule of... Somebody's there. I, I heard it. The rule of definition. That's right. Uh, so... Does anybody know what a lexicon is? <laughs> I thought it was a dance. <laughs> you know, like the Macarena. We go, time to lexicon. Time to lexicon. A lexicon is just a fancy name. It's a book, but it's a book of definitions. It's a book of biblical definitions. So if you come across, say you're reading the Bible, say George is reading Mark, and she comes across a phrase, the Lord's Supper. Somebody who um, doesn't know God and doesn't know about the Lord's Supper that we do every week, they're going, the Lord's Supper? What the heck does that mean? So you can go to this book called a lexicon and look up the Lord's Supper, and guess what? It, it has a definition. It talks about the Lord's Supper. It says what uh, what it meant back in the Bible days, and then it'll tell you what it means today and how people celebrate the Lord's Supper. So the lexicon, how many of you own one? Maybe a couple out there. Uh, if you're going to really start to begin to understand the Bible and you run across words that you don't understand, which if you're reading the Bible, you will, you really should have a lexicon. You know, Go to the bookstore and grab a lexicon. Uh, or... You can have, they're even, actually, guess what? They're online now. So you can go to a free lexicon and look up any word in the Bible that you have, are having a hard time understanding, and you'll be able to define that term. When you define your terms, you begin to understand what those things mean in the Bible. Um, so you might need to use this book in order to make sure that you make sense of what the words mean. A couple of good examples of this are, uh, there's two Greek words called alos and hesteros. Both are usually translated another. Both of them mean another. Um, so in the Bible, in the English Bible that you read, guess what both of them are translated as? Another. But the meaning be be between one and the other is a little bit different. So in English, alos literally means another of the same type. Um, whereas heteros means another of a different type. So can you see why it's important for you to know? So if you uh, are looking through the Bible and you look at a passage that says another, and then you go to another part of the Bible and you look at the same word another and you're having another you're having a hard time understanding why they don't quite match. I guarantee you it's because they use a different different form of that word another. Does that make sense? So can you see why it's important to define your your words? A lot of times when they look at the Bible and they go, "Oh, well, this this verse talks about this one another here, and it talks about one another here, and it doesn't make any sense. So that means the Bible's not true. So they say, oh, it's just, it's all a bunch of hogwash. 
That's not true. It just means that you're going to have to work a little harder because the Bible was not written in English, was it? It was written in Hebrew and Greek. And so those two languages translated into English that doesn't quite translate exactly. So it's very important to define your terms. You have to define what those, the, those are. That's rule number one. Everybody understand that? Get a lexicon. Time to lexicon. Okay? Am I dancing? Is that it? We have to make up the lexicon dance. Number two. What's number two? The rule of usage. Usage is an interesting thing. Um, we have to understand how the writers of the Bible are using certain terms and phrases. Um, for example, when you're looking at the Old Testament, it was written originally to and for who? Jewish people. So the usage of those terms, the usage of some of those things in the Old Testament are going to be specifically geared towards the Jewish culture. And so we have to understand that when we're reading that, it's not the Australian culture that they're writing those for, it's the Jewish culture. So understanding the usage of those words really makes sense when we understand the Jewish culture. The majority of the New Testament, likewise, was written to the Greco-Roman culture, which is another uh, different culture than the Jewish culture. And it's important for us not to impose our modern usage into our interpretation. Let me see if I can give you an illustration. My daughter came home, I don't know how many months ago now, and she goes, that get-together was lit. <laughs> and I went, what? <laughs> what, 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 what? What's going on? And because the word lit, when I was growing up, was used a lot different than what she was using it for. Does everybody understand what I'm saying? <laughs> so when I grew up, getting lit meant you're smoking drugs, right? And now what does that mean? Having a good time. Yeah, it just means, yeah. Similar, <laughs> but not quite the same usage, right? So it's a different usage. So can you see where if I didn't take the step back and go, what? Well, how are you using that term? And didn't I ask you? We talked about it, didn't we? I said, what? You realize that that's not how it's usually used. You know, but it is now. So I'm okay. But at first I thought, oh, is Katie out there smoking drugs? What's, what's going on? You know? So um, it's really important that you understand the usage of different biblical terms because it can mess you up. Okay, it can mess you up. Um, a lot of the inconsistencies that maybe people are picking up on and when they say, oh, I don't believe the Bible because that's in there. Um, we can actually look at those passages and get a little bit deeper and understand the usage of those terms, and then it begins to make a lot more sense. That I should turn this off. <laughs> The other thing about usage is we tend to define things by our own usage of terms, don't we? So when Katie came home and said lit, I defined it how? Because. By the way I 
by the way I have used that term in the past. Okay? And we do that with other things too. Uh, oftentimes we look at the usage of a certain phrase or a certain word in the Bible and we go, oh, I know what that phrase means. Well, you know how you use that phrase or you know how you've heard that phrase before, but you may not know how that phrase is being used in the Bible. So it's very important to separate yourselves from that a little bit so that you can really understand the true meaning of what the Bible is trying to say. What I mean by that is, Oftentimes, when we read something in the Bible that we don't like, or it's telling us to do something that we're not really wanting to do, oftentimes we what? Change the usage. Or we go, oh, I don't, it really must not mean that. Because if it meant that, that means I've got to actually adjust something or do something. Do you see what I'm saying? And literally thousands and thousands of people throughout history have done that with the Bible. They've said, nope. That's not what the Bible really means because they're defining that usage of terms the way they want to, not the way it was really intended. So if you really want to know what the Bible has to say, you've got to, you've got to you know, strip yourselves bare of all that preconceived usage of terms and really understand what the Bible's trying to say. Very important, that rule of usage. You understand? So if you look at 1 Corinthians 14, 33, and 35, this is one of the, the sections that we're going to talk about more in depth, but I just want to touch base on it real quick. Um, if you look at that, what is it talking about? For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, and in all the churches of the saints. The women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are subject themselves, just as the law also says. If they desire to learn anything, then let them ask their husbands, because the husbands know everything. Right? Farzam's going, Amen! Right? <laughs> and how does the verse end? For it's improper for a woman to speak in church. So, who spoke today in church? Marie, you will never speak in this church again according to this scripture. Right? Now, we laugh, but this particular verse has divided churches throughout the centuries. This particular verse. And we're going to look at it, you know, later on. But I just want you to know that this particular verse, if we use the words the way they're intended to be used in this verse, it makes perfect sense. But it's not until we actually get into the verse and we understand the usage of those terms and phrases that we really begin to understand why Paul wrote this letter. What was his intent? What was his usage of these terms? Once we look at it, we'll go, oh yeah, that makes a lot of sense. But if we don't, if we just read it like we just read it, what happens? We have this real huge problem because we're, we're actually going to shut out 50% of the population because the Bible says that women have to be quiet and they can only learn things from their husbands. On the surface, that's what this verse says. So when we, when we really look at it, we're going to have to really look at that in this form of usage. Does that make sense? So that'll keep you coming back. Um, hopefully next time we'll, uh, we'll look at that. Rule number three. 
the rule of context. The meaning must be gathered from the context. Every word you read must be understood in the light of the words that come before and after it. Many passages will not be understood at all or understood incorrectly without the help afforded by context. A good example of this is the Mormon practice of using 1 Corinthians 8, 5b. It's in your, it's in your thing. Someone want to read it for us? You, you, you and your, your Bibles there, your, your phone? Is it listed there? For there be what? Somebody read that. 1 Corinthians 8, 5b. So the Mormon practice is that they believe there are many gods, and they believe that uh, if you live according to their practices, you will become what? You will become one of those many gods, and that you will rule over your own planet, and you will, you know, ha they want to have as many kids as possible because they want to populate their world with many, many kids and population. And they get that from this particular verse. Now, if you look at the verse... In the context of the verse, it plainly, it's plainly means that there, it doesn't mean that there's many gods. You notice the many gods, it's a small g and not a big g. A simple reading of the whole verse in the context of the whole chapter where Paul calls these gods so-called gods in the Bible, it plainly demonstrates that Paul is not teaching that there are many gods. He's teaching that there are so-called many gods. And so you have to look at the whole context of that scripture. Context is everything. You have to look at the before and after. And not just the, the few verses before and after. You might have to look at a few chapters before and after to really get an appreciation for what the Bible's trying to say. So number four. What's number four? The rule of historical background. The interpreter, us, we must have some awareness of the life and society of the history of when and where and to who the Bible is written. The scriptural principle will be timeless, but often can't be properly appreciated without some knowledge of the background or history. We, can't, we have to have this in mind when we're reading the Bible. Um, it's really, really important that we understand why something is being written, at what time period it's being written, to whom it's being written, and understand the context or the uh, the historical context of of why it's being written. So, so in other words, when we look at the Book of Revelation, for instance, um, John wrote the Book of Revelation. And how many of you have ever tried to read any of the book? Yeah, sometimes it's very, very difficult to understand. He uses a lot of uh, figurative language that he saw something that looked like something. So it's really hard to understand some of those things. But when you understand that he wrote it while he was in prison, and he wrote it when he was very, very old, and he wrote it uh, when they were actually checking 
uh, all the mail of the prisoners that were going in and the prisoners that were going out, or the letters that were going in, the letters that were going out, you understand why he probably wrote it in a way that it wasn't quite understandable. He used a lot of uh, descriptive words and languages, so he wasn't really getting specific with some of those things. And a lot of the letters that are in the New Testament are like that. We have to understand uh, the book of Philippians. We probably ought to look at the city of Philippi to understand what that letter, what what was going on in that church and in that space at the time of the writing of the letter. Right? So that's important. Number five is the rule of Logic. Uh, short phrase that will help you understand what this means is it has to make sense. Okay? If if you find something in the Bible that is, is not jiving with you, it's not making sense, then we're probably not interpreting it very well. We're probably not looking at it in the right way. It has to make sense. Um, the Bible was given to us in the form of human language, and therefore appeals to our human reason. We have to understand it by making it make sense. Uh, it invites investigation. It is to be interpreted as we would any other volume, uh, applying the laws of language and grammatical analysis. Bernard, Bernard Ram said, What is the control we use to weed out false theological speculation? Certainly the control is logic and evidence. So we need to control uh, what we read in the Bible by logic and evidence. Does it make sense? And is there evidence for it? Right? It's like the, the uh, resurrection of Jesus. Does that make sense? No. But is there evidence for it? Yes. So we have to look at every passage like that. When we come to a, a, something that doesn't make sense, we have to say, well, I know that doesn't make sense, but is there evidence for it? Can we really believe it? Paul himself says that the, if the resurrection of Jesus didn't take place, what does he say? Yeah, then we should stop doing this. We should stop setting these chairs up and these musical instruments and the coffee up every week because what we're doing here, it doesn't make any sense if the resurrection didn't happen. It has to make sense, okay? And it has to have evidence. Number six, we're nearly done. Hang on to your hats. We're going to do this in about four or five minutes. Rule of precedence. Okay, precedent. This is uh, a rule that says when we look at Scripture, okay, we look and we're looking for a meaning of something, then we look at other parts of Scripture to gain that meaning. All right, we understand that, oh, they're talking about divorce in this passage. Well, let's look at the other parts of divorce. What's, what's the Bible have to say in other parts? And what does it mean there? It's probably going to mean the same as it means here. Okay, we want to make sure that we look at precedence. In the law, what does precedence mean? So when you're looking at the way the lawyers look at this word precedence, what does it mean? It's an example, that's right. So the judge made a ruling about something, and we call that a precedence. 
All right. And you'll learn this, kids, when you get older, if you don't already know this rule of precedence, especially if you go into the law, you'll know that if there was a situation that happens to you and it's probably happened to somebody else in the past. And the lawyer and the judge is trying to rule on it. Guess what he does? He doesn't rule on your he doesn't rule about your situation without going back and doing what? Seeing what other people have done in that same situation. So that's the same in the Bible. When we look at something that happens in the Bible, we have to look at other sections of the Bible that talk about the same thing. And then we'll get an idea of what that means. The Bereans actually did this. And they were a group of people in the Bible. You can find them in Acts chapter 17, verses 10 to 12. Um, and in that section, those people were called noble. Why were they called noble? Because they did what? What's that? Yeah. Because they were doing this. They were looking at the Bible and they were seeking to know what it really said. And this idea of looking at the Bible and seeing what it says about different topics all over the, all over the scriptures. They were working, working those things out every day. They were, be, they were called noble. They were, um, Paul uh, gave them a shout out in the scriptures and said, Hey, these guys, look at, look at the way they, these guys are doing it. These guys are doing it right. They're actually looking at the whole Bible. They're seeing all the precedents that's there. Number seven, the rule of unity. So the different parts of Scripture must be interpreted with reference to the significance of the whole. An interpretation must be consistent with the rest of Scripture. An excellent example of this is the doctrine of the Trinity. Have you heard of the doctrine of Trinity? And we're, this is going to be one of our ones that we'll look at um, as misunderstood parts of the Bible. Did you know the word Trinity is never used in the word Bible? It's ne that word's never used in the, in the Bible. The word Trinity. So do you believe in the Trinity? Father, Son, Holy Spirit? Well, we do, but the word's never used in the Bible. Why do we... Why do we believe in it? Because every time we see uh, God's, you know, described, there's always these three different ways that he's described. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Okay? And we've, we came up with the word Trinity. That's actually not in the word. But this idea of unity, all those have to make sense, right? And the way that we have chosen to make sense of those three aspects of God is we call them that we call it the Trinity and we use Trinity because it means three three different aspects of God that it talks about in the Bible doesn't really give it a name well it kind of does when God says in the Old Testament he says to Moses Moses says when he's going to Egypt to represent God Moses actually asked God who do I say that you are and what does he say? He says, tell them I am that I am. Now that Hebrew phrase is as close of a word that we get to Trinity. Another, another word, it means the total package of God. Just tell them I'm the total package. Basically, that's what that means. Right? You know what that means, right? 
the total package. We use that when we describe women sometimes, right? That's when, when I grew up, that was the usage, right? She's the, yeah, she's the total package, right? She's got the trifecta, right? And what's the trifecta when we're talking about women? She's got the looks, she's got the brains, she's got the person, the Lord, <laughs> yeah, the personality, right? So now you guys are not with me here, but you know what I'm talking about, okay? She's the total package, all right? She's got it all, all right? And we still use that word a little bit. We've changed it a little bit. She's the bomb, you know, or whatever. But the usage of the total package, that's, what, that's how God is describing himself. He's saying, I'm, I'm it. I am the total package. I have it all. I have the Father, I have the Son, and I have the Holy Spirit. I've got it all. So when he says to Moses, hey, you tell him I'm the, I'm the total package. I'm, I'm it all. I've got it all. And so that's this idea of unity. When we see those aspects of God in the Bible, all mentioned separately, they've got to unite. They've got to make sense. Okay, We, we unite them all into a belief that we think, okay, this is God. This is God, the total package. He's, he's Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. Why is he Father, and the whole, Son, and the Holy Spirit? It's because the Bible says these are different aspects of God. We'll talk more about that on a specific Sunday where we deal with how the Trinity sometimes is misunderstood. Did you know we have, we have cults? We have uh, denominations? We have other groups of people that have divided on this idea of the Trinity. Did you know that? Because they didn't quite understand it. Why couldn't they be more like the Bereans and get together and work it out? I don't know. Lastly is the rule of, what's the last one? The rule of inference. All right, this idea is, the fa is a fact reasonably implied from another fact. Okay, it's a logical consequence. And it derives its conclusion from a given fact or premise. So it's the deduction of one proposition from another proposition. In other words, when we see Jesus teaching about one thing, we can, we can gather that this other thing is true. Okay? Um, when, and Jesus used this rule when he proved the resurrection from the dead to the unbelieving Sadducees in that section on your phone where it talks about, and whoever swears by heaven swears both by the throne of God. This is uh, Matthew 23, 22 through 33, and there's a big section there when he talks about this idea of resurrection, okay? And he's trying to teach the scribes and the Pharisees. He's trying to, to uh, prove to them that there is a resurrection from the dead. He ends up doing that, and why does he do that? Why is he talking to them about the resurrection? This is Matthew 22, almost the end of, of Matthew. Why is he trying to help them to understand the resurrection? What? That's right. He was using this idea of inference. He was proving to them that the resurrection happened, right? So that what? When he was... when he was resurrected, they would believe. OK? 
Okay, he's using this one particular truth so that they can infer that to him when he res is resurrected from the dead. Right? So that's this idea of inference. If we know that one person was resurrected from the dead, we can infer that what? Right. And it even says that in the scripture. It says, you will be resurrected. Jesus says, you will be resurrected because what? Because I was resurrected. I am the resurrection and the life, he says. And you will be resurrected because I was resurrected. That's this idea of inference. And that makes that make sense. Okay? We use this idea of inference. The Sadducees were a group of Jewish leaders that they didn't believe that anybody was resurrected. Um, that is why they were sad, you see? <laughs> right? They were sad because they didn't believe anybody was resurrected. So Jesus took this point in time in his ministry to call them out and to say, look, the resurrection is, has happened. And it's going to happen. That's what he was saying. He was inferring to them that it is, it does happen, and it's going to happen to me. That's what he's saying. So you can go home, you can look at that section of Scripture, Matthew 22, 23 to 33, and you can get this idea of what this idea of inference means. I'll close with some words from King Solomon. The wisest man who ever lived, says in the Bible. Um, and he said this. He says, a wise man will hear and will increase learning. And a man of understanding shall attain unto wise counsel to understand a proverb and the interpretation of it. So what the wisest man in the world is saying to you is you need to strive to learn. You need to strive not just to learn, but to understand what the Bible is trying to say to us. And that just doesn't happen because you sit down and you say, God, give me a word. Give me the meaning. Is that how the Bereans did it? What did the Bereans do? They studied on the Bible every day. They read it. They understand it. I, I got to tell you, I'm a little bit jack of people coming up to me and said, God gave me this specific word of understanding. And I say, well, how long did you study on that? Oh, no, it just happened like this. Well, maybe that happens sometimes, but more likely it is that you have to actually read it and you have to understand it. That's where God gives you that message. We have this whole book. We have this whole book of God's messages. Do you think he really needs to send you a specific message saying almost the same thing that it says in there? We need to understand that our responsibility as Christians is to read the Bible and not misunderstand it, to understand the meaning behind it. The wisest man in the world says you are going to be blessed. A wise man will hear and a wise man will understand and a wise man will interpret. If we really want to understand God's message and not misunderstand what it says to us, we will take the time to read it. And it takes time to do that. All right? It takes time to understand it. it takes time to, to get in behind it. But these eight rules, they will really, these eight guidelines will really help us to start understanding some of the most misunderstood passages uh, of, of the Bible. Some of them that have destroyed and divided uh, groups of people over the centuries. And so I uh, hope you're interested in this. 
uh, it's something that we really need to, to tackle because, again, we don't want to misunderstand what God has for us. We want to we want to see it. We want to see it clearly. We want to understand it. Um, we want to be those wise people. We want to be the people like the Bereans who have a look at things. And so what I'm going to try and do is I'll give you a heads up what we're going to be talking about the, 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 the week up, coming up so that you can have a little bit of a reading and, and maybe uh, a bit of understanding before you get here on Sunday. And uh, that way we can, we can have a little bit of a head start before we get started on some of these passages. All right. That's it. Let's, uh, let's pray, and then we can uh, get a bit of morning tea and, and, and fellowship together. So, Hey, God, thank you for today, and thank you for your word. Uh, help us, Lord, to be motivated to study it and to read it, uh, to really know the meaning behind it uh, so that we can live uh, better lives. That's the whole purpose is that, uh, to become closer to you and to really uh, live a life that will uh, have an impact on this world and an impact on other people. Uh, so help us to do that, and we thank you for this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.